Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. How you all doing? Good to have you listen to this episode because it's a very special episode. I get back on the road. I'm getting out there today. I'm breaking my curfew. I'm heading out with Kat Jarman, Dr. Kat Jarman. We're going looking for some Vikings. And I mean literally looking for some Vikings. We're visiting sites across England where the great heathen army, Vikings, Northmen, arrived in the mid to late 860s, toppled one English kingdom after another. East Anglia, Mercia, Northumbria, and then pushed into Wessex, where they met Alfred in battle. In this episode, you'll hear us travelling to a number of sites that Kat has identified as potential sites linked to that great heathen army. She knows more about the archaeology of the great heathen army than nearly anyone else on planet Earth. So I had the best possible guide as I crisscrossed early English kingdoms looking for traces of this huge conquering army. We began in East Anglia, looking at some new sites that haven't yet been identified. We visited the site where King of East Anglia may now be buried under a public park. More of that coming later. And we also went to the spot in Wessex where Alfred may, may we think, have defeated the Northmen bringing to an end their campaign of conquest. This is a podcast, but you also film this journey. We have a TV version of this show, which is available at historyhit.tv. It's the world's best history channel. People have asked for more Viking material. Well, here is some Viking material with Dr. Kat Jum, the best in the business. So you can listen to this pod, and if you like what you've heard, there's plenty more content where that came from. Go and watch our new show, Hunting the Great Heathen Army, over at historyhit.tv. Sign up. You will not regret it. Unlike various rulers in 9th century England who thought they could maybe harness the Vikings and use them to their own ends, which they couldn't. I should say, and it's my fault, when you're recording on location, it's a bit rough out there. You're at the coalface. You're not sitting in the nice soundproof studio like I am now. And you'll hear there's a few clicks. There's a bit of interference. We were getting some interference. I think it was from the radio mics, from the programs we were also filming for History Hit TV whilst we were doing it. We were multitasking. So you will hear a few little bits of audio interference on this pod. I'm very sorry for that, but I didn't really think it was your headphones. Your headphones are fine. They're good headphones. It was wise to spend all that money on them. The clicks are Dan's fault. But in the meantime, here's the podcast with me and Dr. Kat Jarman. Enjoy. Okay, Kat Jarman, the adventure begins here. We're in the east of England, East Anglia, Thetford in particular, which, by the way, may be where Boudicca and the Iceni tribe came from, so that's exciting. Why does the journey in pursuit of the great heathen army start here? This is really one of the earliest places where we've got the documentary evidence. We know that the great army was here, and there might possibly also be some archaeology. We know that the great army was overwintering in Thetford between 869 and 870. And it's very possible that this is also where they came that winter in 865 when they first arrived in England. They must have landed in Kingsley and surely just up here. It's got a big sign, like a neon sign to Scandinavians saying, please land here. Anyway, so Thetford is really significant. We are now sitting in amongst these vast ramparts of an Iron Age fortification some of the most magnificent I've seen in the UK, actually. In the middle is a giant Norman Mott, so various other generations of defence builders thought that this place was important. Makes sense the Vikings might choose this place as well. Absolutely, and I think we need to think about what would the Vikings do, basically? What would a great army do? And they would be looking for sites that have some 
suitable fortifications already, so they don't have to make them themselves. So something like this would make a lot of sense. You've got the river running down the middle, and you've already got these huge big mounds all around us here. Other places, you might not need physical defences, and we know from the records that they actually made peace with the East Anglians, so perhaps they didn't need them at all. But we just don't know. And what's exciting about Thetford is it's not just the sources that tell us the Vikings came here, but there's archaeological evidence as well. Yeah, so while we don't have any certain evidence of the Great Army, there are various bits and pieces of Viking archaeology. So during development work, in building work in some of these housing estates around here, archaeologists have found things like a skeleton buried with a weapon, so a Viking-aged weapon that dates probably to the 9th century, which is perfect for what we want, and other pieces of weaponry as well, even an arrowhead that actually matches a Scandinavian type perfectly. So the archaeological evidence... And the evidence from the sources both suggest that this is the kind of starting point, I guess. This is an overwinter camp where the great heathen army began that kind of conquest of central and into southern England. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if that 865, that first known evidence of Vikings in East Anglia, if that's also here at Thetford, then this is definitely the first time we've got proof of it. Very exciting. From here, they make this kind of peace with King Edmund of East Anglia and they head into the heart of England. And how does that go? Yeah, so for the next few years, we know that they go north, they go to places like York, for example. They essentially just work their way through the country, going back to Mercia, and then eventually coming back here, back south again in 869. Poor old King Edmund. He probably was hoping they wouldn't be back. I think so. I think he was thinking, good riddance, let's drive them north. Right, where are we going next? So one of the things that's quite interesting here is that we've got these Viking camps, but we know that the Great Army, this is a new step up, this is a new phase of the Viking development, really, because this is when it starts to lead to settlement. And actually, interestingly, around here, there is some evidence that suggests that perhaps these weren't just temporary Viking camps. Perhaps this is a starting point of people actually leaving something much more permanent behind in the landscape. Let's go and check it out. Right, you brought me into the mighty forest of Thetford. What are we looking for here? So now we're having a little look at some mounds I've been really interested in discovering. So we're going mound hunting. And you see these mounds tumuli marked on Ordnance Survey maps. I've always thought Bronze Age, Iron Age, but you suspect lots of them are actually much, much more recent. They're Viking. Well, that's the big question because most of them have never been investigated and just by looking at them, we can't tell. So they could date to any of those periods. But actually, what we do know is that the Scandinavians back home in their Viking homeland, the burial man was one of the most common burial forms and there are a few in this country as well. It's very near to here at a site called Santon Downham. A grave, or possibly a double grave, Scandinavian grave, was actually found that dates to the late 9th or early 10th century. So knowing that we've got these Viking graves nearby, and then we also have lots of mounds, I think we need to look at that again. And maybe we've actually got those early Viking settlers. So there's a lot of bracken here, but there's a sort of clearing there with different kind of vegetation on it. That could definitely be a mound. It's not like a towering mound, but there's definitely something there, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. And this is one of the places where it's marked with several tumuli on the map as well. And those have not been investigated, so we have no idea what they are. But I think that one, and maybe if you look over here, there's a sort of slight raised area. But obviously being in a forest and trees planted all around, it's almost impossible to spot them. But if they are... 9th century mounds, this could be evidence for, well, either the great heathen army or their descendants who came here as settlers. 
Absolutely. And I think that's what we need to try to understand because we really want to find that link between those early raiders that we know from the historical records and those early Scandinavian settlers. Because over time, tens of thousands, possibly even more, Scandinavians came to settle in this country. But actually, we've got so little physical evidence of those people. We don't really know who or where they settled. I love the fact that you think they might be hiding in plain sight. All these mounds and tumuli that we see every day on our hikes, they could have Viking remains in them. I think we just need to go back and look at them. We need to just reassess and not just assume because that's what people assumed 50 years ago. Maybe they are. Maybe we have got Scandinavians buried all the way around us. Right, Kat, we've come to Bury St Edmunds. Beautiful ruined monastery in Suffolk. It is a freezing cold, frosty morning here. The blossoms are out. It's an April morning and it should be a lot warmer than it is. Why have you brought me here? I've brought you here because this is a really important part of the Great Army story and it relates to that king we heard about at the beginning, Edmund. So Edmund, he's the guy we learned about in Thetford. He makes the deal with the Great Heathen Army. He sends them off. Good luck, lads. Have fun storming the castle, as his own Princess Bride. Go and raid the Northumbrians and the Mercians. Annoyingly, they come back victorious. You can't have expecting that. Yeah, so they come back in 869, and we don't really know what the terms of the agreement were. We just know that they made peace, but then they come back, and all goes terribly wrong for Edmund. So Edmund sort of abandons his treaty with them and, and opts for trying to eject them violently, does he? It seems to be something along those lines. So it ends up with a battle, and Edmund loses, and very soon after, he loses his life as well. It's the old being chained to the tree and then everyone shooting arrows into him, isn't it? That's right. So he's actually, he becomes far more famous for his death than his life. And that's especially because, allegedly, he refused to essentially submit to these pagans. He was a good Christian king and he refused to submit to them. And that was not taken nicely by the Viking army. Presumably there are a few miracles that were found that occurred, obviously, and then he goes from being dead King Edmund to Saint Edmund. Yeah, so he becomes the martyr king, the martyr saint, and very soon this whole big cult grows up around him and he eventually becomes one of the earliest patron saints of England, actually. And East Anglia, should say, therefore conquered formally at that point by the great heathen army. Yeah, so at this point then, this comes under Viking rule, under Scandinavian rule. The cult goes from strength to strength and then the Normans build this gigantic abbey that we're sitting in the skeletal ruins of now. The abbey is dissolved in the 16th century by Henry VIII. What happened to King Edmund, the saint? So his bones were probably here, his relics were probably here until that time. We don't actually know for certain what happened to them, but they were certainly lost and nobody knew where they were until quite recently. There were quite a few theories around. One of them had him in France, actually, of all places. But then, quite recently, a new theory arose because there's a document that suggests that he was actually taken in the 16th century. His bones were put in an iron coffin and buried in the monk's cemetery just at the end of the abbey here. I did not know that. So we got a new king in the car park situation? Pretty much, because there was actually a tennis court until last year right on top of that cemetery. Wow. 
That's exciting. Are there any plans? I'm asking for a friend with a history, uh, audio and TV business. There is a hope that we might be able to, to find out because now the tennis court's gone. There's a nice, clean, flat lawn there. Something like a big iron coffin would show up really nicely on geophysics. So maybe we could do radar or magnetometry or something like that to give us an idea if there's actually something there. I mean, obviously, the dream would be to try and excavate and try to discover if that really was the case. Oh my goodness, that would be so cool. Imagine discovering a body from the 9th century with loads of arrow wounds in him. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would. I'm not entirely sure we'd be quite that lucky, but we could hope. You scholars. Well, I'm glad St Edmund is still buried in Bury St Edmunds. So, OK, so we've done Norfolk, we've done Suffolk, we've done East Anglia. Where did the great heathen army head next and where are we heading next? So now we're going to go north because now we are especially interested in what happens in Mercia and that's where we've got some really amazing archaeological sites and probably some of the best evidence for the great army's presence. Okay, Kat, you've taken me down to the crypt of this, how do we pronounce it, St Wiston's? St Wiston's Church, yes. Okay, St Wiston's Church. People don't know about this place, but this is one of the most important sites of architectural history in the whole of the UK because this crypt that we're now in is high Anglo-Saxon. Absolutely. So this bit underneath the church dates back probably 7th or early 8th century and that's extremely rare. It's really rare and you can still see some of the paintwork on these pillars. What are these twisty... There's the twist. I remember coming in before and being told the twisty bits around the columns are very important. That's like classic Mercian 8th century or something, right? Possibly, yeah. And it may well have been inspired by, I think it's St Peter's Church as one of the theories. How big is this crypt? It's about four or five metres squared. And it is a very complete crypt, the 15th, 14th century church above us, which you referred to earlier as modern. Yeah, I think pretty much everything after the 11th century is modern, though, isn't it? Uh, no, I don't think that, Kat. I don't think that at all. I think that you're the only person in the world who thinks that, and I think you need to seek help. Um, but talk to me about this crypt. What would have been down here? What would we have seen if we'd been down here before the great heathen army arrived in the 9th century? This, I mean, it feels special when we're here today, but I think if you were here in the 8th century, it would have been absolutely magical. We can see the traces of the paint, the red colour. It would have been really, really vivid, bright colours. It would be full of glittering jewels. There'd be gold, there'd be garnets in red, and it would all be lit up by candles, and you would see that blinking. And in these little alcoves, you'd have the bodies, probably some kind of a coffin, the remains of some of the most important kings of the Mercian kingdom. And Mercia, at various times during the early medieval period, the dominant Anglo-Saxon kingdom in Britain, and this was one of their main royal and religious sites. I mean, this couldn't have been more important in the Anglo-Saxon world. Absolutely. This was kind of the jewel in the crown, as it were, of that Mercian kingdom. So when the Vikings arrived, they knew exactly what they're doing, and they came here for some very, very good reasons. Yeah, unfortunately, the Mercians uh, should not have put this essential royal and political religious site on the banks of a gigantic river, the Trent, which joins neatly to the North Sea. Yeah, that made it a little bit easier, I think, for an invading army that was used to moving by boat. And there's no more surviving architecture that links us to that Mercian monastic establishment, but there's a lot underground, right? Absolutely. So if you walk around the village now today, you can't really see any of it. But over the past 40 years, we've uncovered some really quite remarkable evidence, both for the Merton Kingdom and also for the Viking attack. So let's go out in the graveyard. You can talk me through what you found. Let's do that. You're listening to Dance Notes History, talking about the great heathen army. More after this. How 
What did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, we've come outside now. We're standing right up against the wall of the Anglo-Saxon crypt, the Mercian crypt, church built much later, as we've discussed. And this little 10-metre square patch of grass we're now standing on, this is really significant. It is. This held some of, I think, the most important Viking graves in the whole country, right where we're standing now. So the Vikings came here, captured this kind of essential mercy in sight and then started burying their own dead right into the ground yeah so some point possibly during that time of the winter camp 873 to 874 or just after several individuals clearly died in battle and they were buried right here so the vikings are making a very significant statement by putting their dead possibly their high status dead right in this location one of the dead has appeared on this podcast before he's that famous for those who haven't heard about him tell me about the viking warrior the Repton Warrior. Yes. So Grave 511 is a sort of archetypal Viking warrior, really. He's sort of what you're looking for if you want to find one. He was found buried with lots of objects around him. He had a Thor's hammer around his neck. He was in a grave that had a stone setting with smashed up Anglo-Saxon crosses. And he had a Viking sword along his side. But what's even more remarkable is that we can't always know if somebody was really a warrior just because they were buried with weapons. But this man had several very, very severe injuries to his body. 
And I remember you told me before, I mean, his body was virtually dismembered. Yes, pretty much literally dismembered. He actually had a very severe cut. The most famous of them all is a severe cut through his left femur, through his left thigh bone, going down diagonally at an angle. And if you look at how that cut is made, it's almost certain that he would have lost probably his penis and part of his testicles. And what's even more striking is that those who buried him seem to have want to counteract that fact by placing a boar's tusk in between his legs. Tusk of a mighty wild boar, put it in as a kind of prosthetic and he can enjoy the afterlife. Well, that's the interpretation that we've got, yes. I mean, it's hard to imagine why else you would do that. So the Viking army overwintering here, they've smashed up this vitally important Mercian site. They're burying their high-status warriors right next to the monastery walls. What are they trying to tell the world? This is a very much a political statement. This isn't a sort of smash and grab and get away quickly. This is a conquest of the Mercian territory. This is a message saying, this is ours now. This is no longer the Mercians. This is now in Scandinavian power. Okay, we've headed east from the church, 100 or so metres. We're in the Vicarage Garden, and this is the one of the most exciting places in the whole of Britain. Tell me what happened in here in the 1980s, Cat. In the 1980s, this was excavated for the first time, and right where we're standing now, there was a mound. That mound housed what's probably the most extraordinary Viking site outside of Scandinavia, I think. I mean, that's a big statement. Um, What was in the mound? Yeah, it probably is, but then I have been spending the last decade studying it. I thought you were about to say I've been spending the last two hours with you and you speak in hyperbole all the time, so thank you. Okay, so you've been studying it, so you are obsessed by it. I am, yeah, completely. It's taken over my life, unfortunately. But what they found, because it was slightly before my time, was a mass grave or a mass burial with the remains of almost 300 individuals all cramped into one single room of the ruins of an 8th century building. So one of these monastic buildings, the Vikings turned it into an ossuary? Basically, yeah. So this was part of the monastery originally. It was probably a lovely mausoleum or some other church perhaps or chapel. And at some point during the Viking attack, it was converted. So one room was completely swept clean. They put a layer of red sand down the bottom and then they carried bones from presumably other sites. These were body skeletons that had already been buried somewhere else, taken up out of the ground and moved and packed into this space. And do we have any evidence from other sites like why the Vikings did that? No, this is really unique. We don't have it anywhere else across Scandinavia or anywhere else in the Viking world. But we do know from other sites that we have evidence of bones being curated, bones being moved around, buried. Sometimes we have bones of people we think have died elsewhere. They were Christian burials, so they needed a proper Christian burial ground, so they're moved into churches. But nothing like this anywhere else. We're standing in this garden. There are other humps and bumps around. I'm looking at them now. Are you just itching to get all of this grass up and get under the soil here? I would love to investigate this entire huge big garden. Yes, absolutely. There's lots of different things. We know there are more burials. We've started doing some geophysics, some radar surveys, which showing up some quite suspicious blobs that may, well, hide something quite extraordinary. Okay, so this is a really dynamic Viking site. Next 20 years, we can expect really interesting things come out of here. I think so. I think the story of Repton has not been fully told yet. All right, Kat, you brought me here. We're all three, four, five miles uh, east of Repton now. We're on a kind of high piece of ground and we're looking down at what was once the mighty Trent. Still is the Trent Valley, but now the Trent's like a little tiny canal in the middle of it. It would have been huge back then. 
And so what's the point of being up here? What are we doing here? I've taken you here because this, even though it looks like very little, is actually a really significant new discovery. This is a second Viking camp from that great army, dating probably to exactly the same year as Repton. So why were they at Repton and also here? That's one of the questions we haven't quite been able to work out. But for quite a long time, people have been questioning whether Repton was really it, if that was the only camp, if it was big enough. It didn't seem to match some of the other sites like Torxy, for example, which is a big open site, huge open site, with lots of artefacts that we didn't have that many of in Repton. But then a few years ago, I got in contact with a metal detectorist who'd actually found a lot of artefacts around here that we now know are essentially the signature of the Great Army. Things like gaming pieces, Durham coins, even a Thor's hammer, all evidence that pointed to quite a significant Viking army. Metal detectorist listening to this podcast, guys, report your finds. This person found where the great heathen army camped. I mean, that's a big discovery. It really, really is. And so we are absolutely reliant on metal detectorists reporting these finds to the Portable Antiquities Scheme because it makes a huge difference to our understanding. And in fact, it's completely revolutionised our understanding of the Vikings in England, which is quite staggering. Because it makes sense that you'd want to have a camp here. It's a nice bit of downland overlooking the Trent Valley. You've got, the, obviously, your big highway to the east and into the North Sea. You're on high ground. It's a wide open. It's a great space to camp. It makes total sense. There would have been a kind of festival vibe up here. Pretty much, yeah. If somebody has compared these sites to a festival, you'd have tents, you'd have people selling goods, you'd have people walking around being quite bored, other people making stuff, doing interesting things. So I think that is a really good analogy. It's weird because there is just a random church with no settlement near it, which we're standing in front of now, otherwise surrounded by fields and woods. So did the Vikings start what could have been a more lasting settlement? Yeah, so we actually think that there was a settlement here at the time. And interestingly, the name of the place is Fullmark, which we also know from the Doomsday Book, and there's a recorded village here, so probably a lost medieval village. But Fullmark in itself is really interesting because it comes from a Scandinavian name, Fornwerk, which means the old fortification. Nice. Guys, you're listening to this, so you can't see the smile that Kat's got on her face. That's like Sherlock Holmes delivering the old coup de grace at the end of the story. That's amazing, isn't it? It really is, because that shows that there was a Scandinavian presence here. So we actually excavated here a couple of years ago, and we found some evidence of an early medieval 9th century building, and we think there may well have been an estate, an Anglo-Saxon estate here. So we've got some clues in the name of this site and the fact that there was a settlement here. But the other thing that's really extraordinary is that just a few hundred metres away from us is a site called Heathwood, which is actually the only known large-scale Scandinavian cremation cemetery. There's a whole barrow cemetery just up the road here with 59 burial mounds that have been excavated and that we know have Scandinavian grave goods and bodies in them. Here we are, we're in the heart of the Midlands, we're on the banks of the Trent, and actually this is like a major Scandinavian site in England. Absolutely. It's probably one of the the most significant areas, understanding especially that 9th century present, that great army, those raiders that turn into settlers, just turning the whole Viking story to the next chapter. This is one corner of England that will be forever Scandinavian. Absolutely. Okay, so Kat, you're dragging me through the undergrowth here. We've come to a hilltop, now covered in trees... A smidgen to the east of that last spot. Why are we here and what are we looking for? 
We are about to go mound hunting in a forest. We are looking for the only Scandinavian Viking Age cremation century in the whole country that we know about. So that's, that's extraordinary. Right, so there's a... OK, hang on. OK, we're coming to a clearing. Let's, is this it? Is this it? Here we go. That's amazing. Yeah. So we're in a clearing. Hold on a second. It looks like a First World War battlefield. You've got these kind of, well, I don't know, metre and a half high mounds. You've got loads of them. So what's going on here? So each of these mounds that you can see around us here, each of those is a Scandinavian barrow. So this is a burial, each of them, from the Viking Age. So this is an absolutely exceptional place. It's got at least 59 of them. Has this been excavated? Yeah, so this was excavated a while back, actually. And those that have been excavated, they found Scandinavian grave goods. So they found bodies, cremations, with things like weapons, swords, even some female grave goods as well. So we know that this had both men and women in it. Because this is the highest point, looking down over the River Trent. They were cremated up here. This would have been an incredibly, like, a dramatic setting Absolutely, and I think the landscape placement is key here for so many reasons. One of those is that drama that you get around a Viking Age funeral, but also the fact that you could see these mounds from all around. You can't now because they're hidden by the very recent woodlands, but in the Viking Age, if you were sailing down the River Trent, there was no way you wouldn't see this right on the top of the hill here. By very recent woodlands, you mean it's actually about two or 300 years old, these woods? Yeah, so that's you know, even the reason by your standards, surely, Dan. So we got this, I mean, is this normal in, in the Viking world to get these kind of hilltop mound burials? Yeah, so if you look at Scandinavia, burial in the Viking Age varies quite a lot, but the mound is very, very common as a form of burial. So you get these, you get clusters of them outside settlements and towns. So places like Birka or Kaupang in Norway, for example, they all have these mound cemeteries. So this is something that the Vikings and the Scandinavians would be used to back home. This really is just another example of a just a classic piece of Scandinavian culture and identity, just but in the heart of England. Absolutely. And this is one of the few that have been actually investigated. And the interesting thing is that we do have a lot of other mounds like this all the way around the country. Most of them are assumed to date to different periods, but actually a lot of them we just don't know. So there could be more Scandinavian or Viking Age burial mounds. I'd never even heard of this place existing, and it's an amazing site. I love it. Okay, Kat, we've climbed to the top of the kind of escarpment overlooking the town of Eddington. We're on the edge of Salisbury Plain. It's one of the most dramatic landscapes in southern England. Why well, you brought me here? This is almost the end of that story that we've been trying to tell. This is hopefully, or probably, the site of the Battle of Eddington, the sort of decisive battle between the Vikings and Alfred the Great. It's a blustery day up here. We don't know exactly where the battlefield was, but this could be the kind of culmination of this story following the great heathen army. They attack Chippenham, don't they? Kind of chase Alfred out of one of his principal towns. He then goes and does his famous hiding out in Somerset. Yeah, that's right. So for several months he hides there until he starts planning his little counter-attack to get his kingdom back. So he gathers all the men, all the people he can in Somerset and in Wiltshire and Hampshire and then they start moving back up and they end up at this site called Ethandun, which we think is Eddington in Wiltshire and they have this giant battle and that doesn't end very well for the Vikings and Alfred defeats them. 
we could be standing on, it's so tantalising, we could be standing on one of the great decisive battlefields in British history. After this, Alfred saves Wessex, but there's a kind of formal division of England, isn't there? Yeah, pretty much. So what happens is that Alfred chases the Vikings back to their fortification, probably Chippenham, and he essentially besieges them, and they are stuck in there for 14 days, and eventually they admit defeat. And what happens then is really interesting, because they actually agree to leave the kingdom, they agree to leave Wessex, and they agree to swear oaths to him, give him hostages, and Guthrum and 30 of his best men agree to be baptised and become Christian. So that happens a few weeks later and eventually they leave Wessex or they leave Chippenham at least. And then at some point after this, we have a surviving treaty, which is called a treaty between Alfred and Guthrum. We don't quite know when it's signed, it's sometime soon after that, but that actually gives different sort of rights to territories under Alfred's rule and territories under Guthrum's rule, which is probably the, the eastern part, places like East Anglia, where we were earlier. And it even gives a boundary line between them. And later on, this sort of eastern part under the Scandinavian rule becomes known as the Danelaw. So there you go. The Great Heathen Army has not succeeded in conquering the whole of England, but it has tightened its grip, now affirmed by treaty, on large chunks of the eastern side of the island. Yeah, that's right. And that's really where we then start to see those settled populations. So if you look at things like place names, they're really spread. Scandinavian place names are spread all the way in that area. Uh, that becomes the Danelaw. Well, Kat, you've been the best guide imaginable as we've rampaged across England on the footsteps of the Great Heathen Army. We've ended up here, perhaps, on the kind of titanic battlefield of Ethendune. Thank you very much indeed. Let's do another Viking road trip soon. Absolutely, there's lots more to find. Thank you for making it here. This episode of Dan Snow's History. I really appreciate listening to this podcast. I love doing these podcasts. It's a highlight of my career. It's the best thing I've ever done. And your support, your listening is obviously crucial for that project. If you did feel like doing me a favor, if you go to wherever you get your podcasts and give it a review, give it a rating, obviously a good one, ideally, then that would be fantastic. And feel free to share it. We obviously depend on listeners, depend on more and more people finding out about it, depend on good reviews to keep the listeners coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.